Lynn Hiles Ministries presents Dr. Lynn Hiles That You Might Have Life. And here's your host, Dr. Lynn Hiles. Welcome back to the program again this week, and thank you for joining us. Uh, we've been doing a series out of the Gospel of John, and uh, we've actually filmed chapter one and chapter two of the book of St. John, but uh, during the time that we were not filming, I uh, had some had the Lord just kind of give me some fresh things even out of John chapter 1. So I'm going to go back and revisit that uh, chapter just a little bit today. But uh, I actually, even as uh, I was traveling last weekend, I literally had the Lord begin to speak to me some things about the overview of the book of John that I want to share with you in just a few moments. And uh, I think you're going to really be blessed by this series. I know it has really connected some dots for me. And if you've watched us any amount of time, you know that we really get in here and dig into the Scriptures and mine out some real gold. And whatever now and then, it's like mining for gold. You hit this vein and you just got to kind of stay with it. And uh, this has just been an ongoing fresh revelation to me of some of the things that we have shared out of the Gospel of John. Of course, you know, uh, our, 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 our Scripture, one of the things that we have shared is that John chapter 20, uh, John writes and says that the purpose of this book, he said, these things are written so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and that believing you might have life through His name. And uh, what we begin to show you is that the book of John, or the Gospel of John, is John really giving a convincing argument that Jesus Christ is in fact the one that all the law and the prophets prophesied concerning was now on the scene. And at surface you could go over the book of John and see a lot of uh, you know, things that are powerfully there. I mean, He heals the sick, He raises the dead. He cast out devils, but as I really begin to dig around in this book, uh, I begin to see that it's much deeper than just that. Uh, what he's trying to show you is that every miracle he does, every sign that he does, would have joggled the mind of a first century Jewish person standing there, knowing that he was showing them something that they would have understood from their history. And I'll get into the details of that in just a moment. But you know that back last year or la earlier, um, yeah, or, or probably towards the beginning of last year, we did 28 programs on the seven times that Jesus said, I am, in the Gospel of John. And what the Gospel of John again is doing is trying to show you that the great I am is the I am that was in the wilderness and it was all the way through the Scriptures that when Moses said, who must I say sent me? He said, you tell him, I am sent you. And what we see fulfilled when we get to the book of John is that Jesus is the fulfillment of the great I am. He is manifesting the Father to the earth and He is showing them what Father really looks like. And when he does that, and when he says the seven I am's, he comes and simply says stuff like this. In other words, he would say, I am the bread of life. And uh, he would say that in contrast to where he was about to feed the multitudes, and he would say to them, your fathers ate manna in the wilderness, and they're dead. 
but I am the true bread that came down from heaven. In other words, you thought under the old covenant that that natural bread was the true bread, but that's not the bread, I'm the bread. And we talked about how he said to them, I am the door. Uh, in other words, you thought the door into uh, the things of life and to the kingdom of God was through performance-based Christianity under the law, but I am the door. And in chapter 1, he really begins to tell you that, you know, grace and Moses gave you the law, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. And so what I want you to see is that he's making a comparison all through the book of John as to how it compares with what could have been an Old Testament type and shadow. Now, my teaching is... Uh, probably just a bit different, because I really believe that the Old Testament is Jesus concealed, and the New Testament is Jesus revealed. In other words, there are types and shadows and pictures and snapshots of redemption all through the book of uh, Old Testament that are trying to, I believe it is God trying to teach us a language of the Spirit so that by the time, for instance, we get to chapter 2 where I talked about last week where Jesus said, you destroy this temple in three days I'll raise it back up again. They're thinking he was talking about that natural temple, but what he was saying is, you thought that was the temple. That's not the temple. I'm the real temple of God. And so uh, as he begins to show the shift from the natural dimension to the spiritual dimension, I begin to see a continuity in the flow throughout the Gospel of John. Now before I get too deep into this, let me tell you that you're probably interested by now and say, boy, I sure wished I hadn't missed some of those. Let me just briefly say that everything we have aired to date is archived on our YouTube channel. And they are there uh, for free for you to watch, and they are also on our iTunes podcast and the audio portions of them, and we also have an RSS feed with the audio portion uh, for your Android device. Now the easiest way to go back and access that is to go to my website, and you will see that address on the screen or right here, and in the upper right hand corner there are little icons with the YouTube insignia, the little robot that looks like it's a Android, and the little iTunes uh, insignia. If you tap on them, they will take you directly to those pages and you could subscribe to them free of charge. We are making that available to you at this time free. We thank our partners for making us able to do that. But uh, you're going to be able to go back and review some things. Let's say you today are watching this. You said, boy, I sure wish I would have recorded this. And if you didn't record it on your DVR, you can go back and watch it on, uh, our, like I said, all of those places. I would also encourage you to go to my public profile on Facebook and it is Lynn Howes Ministries, and like our page. And what we normally do is we upload the video there as soon as we have it ready. So uh, I just really encourage you to do that. That really is a powerful way to be able to uh, get into these things. But I want to come back again and just give an overview again of some things that I did not see even in the last two filmings. We filmed about eight programs on chapter one and chapter two, but I want to give just a, as I was sitting in my hotel room this weekend, and I had begun to think about how, uh, once again, you know, Jesus is showing them, you thought that was the door, that's not the door, I'm the door. You thought those corrupt shepherds of Israel were the true shepherds, but they're not the shepherds. I'm the true shepherd of the sheep, and I'm the way into the sheepfold. And so as I begin to see 
Everything about John is opening up a spiritual dimension, and it's trying to get you to see something. Uh, and let me, I just make some comparisons. Like, for instance, John chapter 1 starts out by saying, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And, and uh, the, uh, the world was made by him. He was in the world, and the world knew him not. But it is really John going back, completely back to the Genesis motif, and he's showing you this. He's saying, you thought, and in fact it was, that was the old creation, but John's gospel is about to introduce a new creation. Uh, John would say to them, you know, and, or Genesis would say, and God said, let there be light, and there was light, and there was that natural light, and that which was created. But Jesus comes on the scene and says, in Him was life, and the life was the light. In other words, He begins to show you that He's the beginning of the new creation of God. And he, he is, you know, it's interesting to me, even in Genesis chapter number 1, where it says, in the beginning God, the Hebrew word for beginning there is the Hebrew word first fruit. Now we know that in John's gospel, chapter 1, that Jesus Christ is the first fruits of them who slept. He's the firstborn among many brethren. He's the first uh, in a line of a new humanity, and what he's showing you is the new creation. So that's the contrast. He comes on down through there as he's talking to, uh, uh, you know, uh, the woman, or he, as he comes on down through there, he begins to talk about uh, walking in the light as he is in the light, and, and, uh, and then he compares the fact that uh, grace and truth uh, came by Jesus Christ, and the law came by Moses. He makes that comparison. And we're going to come back to this one in just a little bit, but the latter part of chapter 1, this is the one I really want to emphasize, and probably may not get to it in this portion, but perhaps next week. He makes this comparison when he calls, uh, he calls uh, uh, this guy uh, to follow him, Nathaniel, and he says, Behold an Israelite in whom is no guile, and he says to Nathaniel, while you were under the fig tree, I saw you. And Nathaniel says to him, how is it that you saw me when I was under the fig tree? Surely you must be the, uh, the Messiah. And Jesus says to Nathaniel something that we read over very quickly and we might miss the point. He said, you think that's something, Nathaniel. From henceforth you will see the angels of God ascend and descend on the Son of Man. Now I'm telling you that's a direct quote from Genesis chapter 28 where Jacob was about to, uh, he was about to uh, have a confrontation with God and God would renew his covenant with, with him and he would call the name of that place Bethel which means the house of God and he said that when he was at Bethel he saw a ladder let down from heaven and the angels of God ascend and descend on that ladder. And so what Jesus is literally doing is He's saying to you, saying to them, you thought that was the Bethel, you thought that was the location of the house of God, and you thought that's where angels of God ascend and descend, and in fact that may have been in the Old Covenant, but the real Bethel is on the scene. And I'm going to unpack that probably for a couple of programs in just a little bit. So He's saying to him, you thought that was the house of God, but in the New Testament the house of God is not a location, it's a person, He's Jesus Christ, He's the tabernacle of God, and then ultimately he says, what, no, you're not. You are the temple of the Holy Spirit. So the place where angels of God ascend and descend, I don't want to unpack that too much because I'm going to take a, long, a couple of uh, probably segments to share that.
or at least one. But I wanted you to see that comparison. In that chapter also, uh, <clears throat> he's on his way, and Bethel, Jacob is on his way to get a bride. It's not an accident that chapter 2 opens up in the Gospel of John, and Jesus does his first miracle at a wedding, because it's a picture of him on his way to get his bride. And I think that's a powerful picture that you see him on the way to get his, his bride. He also, in that chapter, at that wedding at Cana, turns the water to wine. The first miracle Jesus does is turns water to wine. The third miracle that Moses does is turns water to blood. I don't think those things are accidents. He's trying to show them the difference and the contrast between Moses gave you the law and grace and truth came by. He's showing you the difference in these covenants, if you will. And so uh, there, what he shows you then is in chapter 2, he turns, Moses turns the water to blood, Jesus turned the water to wine. And uh, chapter 2, there's a new bride and a new wedding. There's a new way of cleansing that's offered there as he takes six water pots that were made from earthen vessels from stone, fills them with water, and turns the water into wine. It's a powerful picture that in the new covenant, God puts his spirit inside of us, fills us with the Holy Spirit, brings us into a new covenant marriage relationship at a wedding, and cleanses us from the inside out and shows us a new way of cleansing. In the latter part of chapter 2, uh, he's talking about, the, as he stands in front of the beautiful buildings of the temple, and he says to them, after he cleanses and drives the money changers out of the temple, he says to them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it back up again. Once again, he's trying to shift their mind out of a natural carnal way of thinking and into a spiritual dimension, because they think that's the temple, and he's trying to show them that his body is the temple. In other words, you destroyed this temple, and he clearly says, this spake he concerning the temple of his own body. And of course we know he was talking about his redemptive work and his death, burial, and resurrection. They destroyed his temple, and three days later he got back up again to become the very house of God that we now live and move and reside in, and in Revelation chapter number 21, uh, there is no temple therein, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are the temple, and uh, that's in the latter part of that chapter. And so uh, then he includes us in that because he says also in the first part of chapter 21, behold the tabernacle of God is with men. In other words, God has, you know, I love, the, uh, you've heard me quote this so many times, but Revelation 21 in the King James Bible says, it says, uh, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men. Uh, the Message Bible says it like this. It says, Look, look, God has moved into the neighborhood. He has made His home in men. He's their God. There is people. God has moved into the neighborhood, so He makes us the temple. You say, well, how can He be the temple and we be the temple? Well, it's the words of the Apostle Paul. I'm in Him, and He's in me. And I think those are powerful pictures again, of him moving from the natural dimension to the spiritual dimension. And if you want to understand some things about the Spirit, I would encourage you to open your mind beyond the carnal natural dimensions and start to see what's really being said here. And uh, I think it will help to uh, make, uh, make you see some things that didn't seem to be, uh, you know, that you don't necessarily see on the surface, but you get under the surface 
and you begin to find another dimension here of truth that begins to unfold. So, you know, as you start to see these things, you start to see, well, the old covenant was natural, and the new covenant is spiritual, which confirms the words of the Apostle Paul, who said, Howbeit, that that which is natural is first, and then that which is spiritual. So the old covenant natural, the new covenant spiritual. And, uh, you know, I, I said this this weekend when I was preaching somewhere, I said, you know, the truth of it is, is that people will not crucify you for what you say. They will crucify you for what they think you said. See, Jesus was talking in the spirit. They're thinking in the natural. And when he said, you destroyed this temple, they thought, they came back to him and said, Do you, we've been 46 years, we've been building this temple. And, and you're going to build it? You're going to build it in three days? In other words, they just thought, their carnal mind went out of the safety zone. But because they're thinking in the natural, and he's talking in the spiritual, they miss the whole point of what he's trying to say. Then in chapter 3, he, he deals with a guy by the name of Nicodemus. And the whole point with Nicodemus, and we'll get there and unpack this a whole lot more too as we get there, is that in chapter 3, Nicodemus is the ruler of the synagogue, and he comes to Jesus, and he's a Jewish teacher who is a master teacher in Israel. And Jesus, he comes to Jesus by night. And when he comes to Jesus by night, Jesus says to him, Nicodemus, in order to see the kingdom of God, you must be born again. And so he begins to say some things to Nicodemus about being born again. In other words, what he's saying to Nicodemus, I call him Nick at night, because he came at night to see Jesus, Nicodemus, who came by night. And Jesus said, you must be born again. What he's saying to Nicodemus is, you thought your natural birth was enough. You thought your natural genealogy would get you in the kingdom. But Nicodemus, if you don't understand that you must be born again, then you're not going to see the kingdom of God. In other words, he's contrasting, again, a natural birth to a spiritual birth. So everything's shifting from natural to spiritual when you get here in the book of John. And so he's showing Nicodemus, no son, listen, your natural genealogy is not good enough. It's not enough to be uh, the seed of Abraham. As a matter of fact, he tells the Pharisees and scribes in another place, if you were Abraham's seed, you would believe, because Abraham was a man of faith. And he tells them, Abraham is not your father. You are of your father, the devil. And he begins to tell them that what is most important is a born-again experience, that your natural genealogy is not enough. Chapter 4, uh, he begins to meet with a woman. Now, I think it's interesting that in chapter 3, Nicodemus comes by night. Chapter 4, the Samaritan woman comes by day. <laughs> Isn't it amazing? Sometimes the people with the most need will come, or the ones you don't think are included come. But he, Jesus said he must needs go through Samaria. And what I'm going to do is show you the reason he needed to go through Samaria from the book of Ezekiel, because Nicodemus would have understood, or his mind, because he was a master teacher, would have understood some things that needed to be fulfilled from the Old Covenant. And I won't get into that because it'll take a lot to unpack that one. 
but we'll get into that a little bit later, except to show you that uh, this Samaritan woman shows you that he's not only going to deal with Jews, he's going to include Gentiles. So the Gentiles are there, and all of a sudden Jesus begins to shift the paradigm again from natural to spiritual, even with the woman at Samaria for several reasons. Number one, he says to her, you people think we need to worship in this mountain, and our folks say you need to worship in this mountain. But what he begins to teach her is, listen, the location you worship, he said the hour is coming when they'll neither worship in this mountain or in that mountain. So he's saying location's not the issue, but true worshipers will worship me in spirit and in truth because the temple is going to be not on some mountain, it's going to be inside of you. And the whole story of the woman at the well is that Jesus takes a natural well, which is the well of Jacob, and starts talking about spiritual water because Jesus comes to a well and there's a woman who comes to a well and Jesus is sitting on the well. So there's a well sitting on top of the well, and by the time that woman leaves, she becomes a well and says, come see a man that told me everything I ever did. And so Jesus begins to say to her, if it, I have water to drink, that if you drink this water, you will never thirst again. And he begins to talk about spiritual water. Can you see the flow of where I'm going with this? In other words, he makes powerful comparisons from the natural realm to the spiritual realm and begins to show you that it's not natural water we're dealing with, it's not a natural temple we're dealing with, it's a spiritual dimension that is not only, see here's the thing also that I see with, with Nicodemus, he's in a religious system that's not satisfying him and he needs something from Jesus. Here's a woman at a well who's not in a religious system. She's a Gentile, and what she's finding out is the same thing the world is finding out, and that is, I'm thirsty for something that the world is not satisfying. And I believe we're at this juncture in human history again. You know, people are leaving the churches by the thousands, and churches are closing up, and pastors are leaving the ministry. Because what's happening is, is people aren't necessarily turning from God, they're turning from religion. But it's because there's the thirst for something and a hunger for something that religion is not satisfying. And at the same time, there's a lot of people in the world that are looking for something that the world is not satisfying, that there's a God-shaped void and a thirst and a hunger that only God can fill. And the answer to both of them, whether you're a religious leader or you're in the world, is that Jesus is the Christ the son of the living water, and he's the only one who can give you water to drink that you will never thirst again. And so in chapter 5 then, he comes to a man that's laid by the pool of Bethesda. Again, we're going to unpack these things in detail as we get to them. But the pool of Bethesda is the house of mercy. It's literally a lot of hospitals are made out from this name because it was a great multitude of impotent folk waiting for the moving of the water, because a certain time an angel would come down and trouble the water. Now if you kind of study this a little bit, look at some of the commentators, what they tell you is that this, there was a sheep gate that was near this. This sheep gate is where they would wash the, these lambs for slaughter in the stream that was above this pool of Bethesda, and many times they would cut the throats of the lambs, and the blood of the lamb would run into the water, and as the blood of the lamb would run into the water at a certain season, which was Passover, it would trouble the water and somebody would get healed. 
It's an incredible picture of Jesus and the pouring out of His blood into the waters that can heal the sickness and the crippledness of the human family. I feel the Holy Spirit when I say that, because I'm telling you what happens when Jesus shows up is the water troubler is now there. But this is what's really interesting, is that this man was crippled, and there was a lot of people there that were halt, lame, blind, and crippled. But Jesus comes to a man who's been there for 38 years. Now if you take this number 38 and put it in your concordance, it'll take you back to the children of Israel in their wilderness journey and the amount of time that they forfeited before they came, after they transgressed the covenant of Abraham, God gave them the law that they were in the wilderness for 38 years. That's not an accident, folks, because what he's showing them a picture of here is that this man who's laid at the pool of Bethesda is a picture of natural Israel that when Jesus comes on the scene, he's trying to bring them into a spiritual promised land called rest in the finished work of Jesus Christ. But here lays a multitude of impotent folk who are halt, lame, and blind. And he simply asked him this question, Wilt thou be made whole? Do you want to be made whole? In other words, are you tired of your religious background enough to let me heal you? And if he, do, he heals this man and tells him, you know, he just heals him, and, 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 and sets him free. In chapter 6 of the book of John, he brings the children, he brings, he, he, he come, they just, and chapter 6 opens, says, now the feast of Passover was nigh. So they just left the feast of Passover in chapter 6 of John. They cross over a sea, and they're in the wilderness, and Jesus is about to feed the multitudes the 5,000 with bread and fish. It is in that setting, in other words, I believe what should be seen here is that should have joggled their minds as Jewish people who would understand what this picture meant. They just left the Passover, they're in a wilderness, and now they're going to eat bread. If that doesn't bring your mind back to Egypt, where God delivered them out of Egypt by the blood of a lamb right after Passover, they cross the sea, and then He gives them bread and manna in the wilderness. And it is in John chapter 6 that Jesus says to them, your fathers ate manna in the wilderness, and they're dead. But I'm the true bread that came down from heaven. And they said, show us a sign. And he says, in other words, uh, he, he, that's when he quotes that, when he said, show us a sign. He said, your fathers ate men in the wilderness that are dead. He said, but I'm the true bread that came down from heaven. I think he probably looked at them and went, duh, do you not see here that this bread that I just gave you is an, another picture of what happened in the wilderness? Do you not see that these things are written that you might believe that I'm the Christ, the Son of the living God, that I am the I am that brought you out? Chapter 7, He heals somebody on the Sabbath to show them that He's the true Sabbath day. And He does that at the Feast of Tabernacles, and He says to them, he, as He steps up on the pinnacle of the temple, if any man's thirsty, as they're about to pour the water drink offering, he said, if any man is thirsty, let him come to me and drink of the water of life freely. 
And then in chapter 8, he comes to a woman caught in adultery. I think it's a powerful picture of Israel as an adulterous woman, and he's trying to show her that if she will allow him, he will set her free from condemnation and release her to a place where she could go and sin no more. In chapter 9, there's a man born blind, and so... Uh, I'm very excited to announce the release of my newest book. It is titled, From Law to Grace, A Kingdom Paradigm Shift. In this book, we talk about how the gospel is not about a law you have to keep. It is about receiving a life that will keep you. It is not about living this life out of fear. It is about living a life of faith. It is not about rules. It's about a relationship with a loving Father. It is about moving from the old covenant government of condemnation to the new covenant government of affirmation. It is about living life as a citizen of the kingdom right now.